I always think in my mind, like when he delivers these revelations, he's sitting like across this two foot table, someone's looking in his face and he says, I am God. I am the one, the only, I am Christ, right? Like you're the person on the other side of that table and the embodiment of Christ is in this prophetic figure. And it's not like they didn't take him seriously. These commandments aren't just like, hey, go get some paper. They're like, hey, sell your home, move to the Western side of the United States, establish a kingdom of God. These are massive revelations that take decades. And even now we're still trying to fulfill some of them. And these people are following absolutely. They're giving up their entire lives and livelihoods just to follow that prophetic voice. That is a kind of hierarchy that you cannot ignore. Hey, it's me, Richie T, host of The Cultural Hall, and I just want to take a quick second. Thank you for finding us. If this is your first or your 400th episode, uh, thank you so much. encourage you to please share us with your friends. That's how we're able to do more, gain more, see more, interview more, all the things. Uh, please do that. Excited to have this conversation with Michael McKay. We talk about his book, Prophetic Authority. It's out in bookstores now, and the bummer thing is, is it came out on the 6th of April. You know, right in the height of the quarantine. So if you like today's discussion, please go out and purchase his book. It's with uh, the University of Illinois Press. You can find it wherever you buy books. Let's be honest. I know you're just buying it online, but uh, get it delivered to your home. Check it out. Local bookstores is the way I would tell you to do it, but I'm not going to boss you. And we get into some of the nitty gritty of, uh, of what makes the church successful, of the prophetic hierarchy that exists within the church and how that helps the church be able to continue to exist today. I get super nerdy in this discussion, and, and I feel like he does too. He's a great, nice guy. I don't think he knew what to expect. You can hear him at the very beginning where it's like, what is this cultural hall thing I'm doing? And by the time we get even just a couple minutes in, we just have a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it like I did. It's time for another episode of The Cultural Hall. We're visiting with Michael Hubbard Mackey McKay. Let's start there. How come it's spelled like Mackay, but you say it McKay, Michael? Um, I mean, that goes back to, I think, I think the first McKay that called it McKay, it was Mackay before then. And so you have this, uh, one of the first uh, representatives of Utah uh, was a McKay. He actually said Mackay, and it's split to McKay and now Mackey. And so the original is Mackay. My family says McKay. Okay, okay. I, I feel like leaning into the original pronunciation, like old things becoming new and then new things becoming old. It might be a, an interesting flex for you to go towards. Yeah, I'll take Mackay. My grandmother said it was Mackay, so. Okay, okay. Uh, we didn't have uh, Mike on to talk about the etymology of his name. No, rather he is. Let me get you the official bio, everyone. <clears throat> an associate professor at Brigham Young University, a former historian for the Joseph Smith Papers Project. He is the author of Sacred Space, Exploring the Birthplace of Mormonism, and co-authored Joseph Smith's Seer Stones. He also has authored a new book. It's called Prophetic Authority. It was a gift that I got in the mail the other day um, from the folks there at the University of Illinois Press. 
and uh, it, it, a welcome gift during this time of pandemic. So uh, I'm excited to talk about that. But first, I think that we need to let people know, aside from Mackay, a little bit about you. You've worked on a bunch of historical projects. Why are you uh, so passionate about church history? Um, my, my interest in church history, uh, I guess, just goes back to uh, me being a Latter-day Saint. Uh, that's, that's the origins of it. Um, but my serious interest in church history came from, uh, I, I, I started, my PhD is in the history of science and medicine from okay. the University of York. And, and it, it's a fairly interdisciplinary and um, um, theoretical field. And so the move to church history came because uh, when I got out of my PhD, there was, you know, it was during the, the downturn, the, the 19 or 2008. And um, you I got look, a job. You, you kind of look around and you're like, okay, jobs. All right. Yeah. No <laughs> jobs. All right. Yeah. Great. I've got all this student debt. And now what? Exactly. So I, I started as a visiting professor in the history department at Brigham Young University. And I stayed there for a couple of years and then got a couple of job offers. And quite frankly, the only one that paid me well enough to take the job was uh, Joseph Smith Papers Project. But I was really excited. And, and since then, I've become a specialist in Joseph Smith. I'm still interested in interdisciplinary projects. Um, but in particular, my entire career in the past decade, about 12 years, has been centered around Joseph Smith. So, and the research of religion. So we've talked uh, a lot about, and we've done news stories here in the Cultural Hall, about the Joseph Smith Papers. We have made contact with several of you who have worked on the Joseph Smith Papers project, but you are actually the first person ever to have really worked on it to be here in the Cultural Hall. So people that uh, maybe they understand exactly what that is, can you can you sum up what the Joseph Smith Papers project is if they don't know? Yeah, so it's a it's a documentary editing project. So they've collected all of Joseph Smith's papers, and they're a unique project because they plan on publishing all of his of his papers. This is his journals, his letters. Um, this is like his, notes notes to Emma, where it's like gone to the store, be back, watch the kids. Like it, it, it as far as I understand, it's literally anything that we have that we can verify back to Joseph Smith. Yeah, even even benign papers are in there, ones that really don't. Uh, I mean, I think if you read the Doctrine and Covenants, you might see some of the sections in there are benign. But <laughs> it, there's there's certainly uh, uh, some the the minutia that is included in the project is remarkable, and the way that they do the project, looking at pinholes, uh, handwriting adjustments within the pages. It's a remarkable project, and I think it has absolutely changed the study of Joseph Smith since it began and, and as it progresses to a finish within the next couple of years. And like you said, I mean, that's now 12 years ago. It's a massive project with about how many people involved and what will be the final product as we, as we look back on volumes and all that stuff. Yeah, the construction of the Joseph Smith papers started at the uh, Joseph Smith Institute when that was at Brigham Young University and then moved up to the papers. But they, you know, the people who are envisioning that, people like Ron Esplin and Ron Barney, um, that was as early as 2002 that it began. So 2002, you get a, a small group and it's slowly grown. Um, and it's really by 2007, 
it has it became extremely professionalized under people who are probably the best documentary editors uh, in the nation, to be honest. Someone like Mark Ashurst McGee, who's the current head editor or review editor of the papers. Um, so it professionalizes after 2007 as a real legitimate documentary editing project. And uh, now, you know, they cycle through. It's not a job that most people do for their entire career, unless you're someone like Mark. Um, so you have people like me who have, who have uh, come in for three or four years and then moved on. Um, and so you have quite a few of those, but you also have a handful of people that are rather permanent. Robin Jensen is another core person. Matt Grow and, and Reed Nielsen were major parts of really professionalizing it also. And it's an interesting thing because within the Joseph Smith papers, I think that that's had uh, an effect on the church as a whole in that we've had to be far more, um, I don't I don't know that I want to say forthright, but maybe, right, we, put, we publish these things and it's not all, you know, it's not, it's not the journal that Joseph Smith left out for his wife or the church to read. This is everything, uh, the good, the bad, the difficult, the really easy to understand, the nuanced stuff that we, we can't really understand at all. It's everything. So it, it, it's, it's been a tremendous um, growth period for the church with the Joseph Smith Papers as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. The Joseph Smith Papers is, is the marker of the church taking itself very seriously. Um, you know, when you perpetuate a, a theological program within the church, so you're your curriculum is based upon belief rather than a like a secular historical understanding of the past. Um, so the church has been accused of like hiding things in the past, and perhaps they, you know, in a sense of hiding, they they didn't emphasize it. That's for sure. And sure. maybe in some cases there was some hiding. Um, this is a, an honest effort to reveal. Like you got you have things like um, many like even early revelations that changed or early manuscripts of the Book of Mormon, like central scripture that demonstrates, uh, you know, some real obvious change. Uh, they have been honest about revealing it and bringing it forth, and it comes directly from church leaders. So you, you've, we've entered into a, a period in which the church is taking its historical past extremely seriously, um, even if it is contrary to the current trends that the church is teaching towards. And I think that's honest, you know, a way like this, this doesn't have to push belief to the side. Mm -hmm. It just causes a more sophisticated sense of belief rather than just a, an assumed, here's what we believe. And it's always been that way. It's a historical complexity that a lot of people are dealing with. Why, why do you like it so much? I can tell that you're passionate about it. I can tell it sort of drives you. But what what is it that personally makes you uh, just really love that we're being more open, that we're being more honest, that we're being uh, catalysts for the discussions to be had. It's it's probably just because I'm a product of my own time, right? Like as a Gen Xer, like this is this is the kind of thing that satisfies me. It's it's a sense of like honest belief. Like uh, within a secular age, we we want to take religion seriously. It's not like you give up on God. God just becomes more complex. Mm -hmm. And so the complexities of belief begin to, to scatter in thousands of different directions. And to see like uh, a church like Latter-day Saints, which is extremely conservative, take itself seriously enough to examine these complexities, even when they're in contradiction to, to stated beliefs, 
uh, creates for me a foundation, which as centrally as in someone interested in the study of religion, like this is the kind of things, the reactions, instead of entrenchment and dismissal of good ideas and good epistemologies, uh, smart things out there don't have to be ignored to be a kind of believer. Like religion has extremely powerful effects and, and powerful positive and negative effects. And to excuse those that are negative effects is a huge mistake, like to bury them. Like you, you need to like be self-aware, you need to be positive and understanding these things. And, and I think, uh, especially within the church as a Latter-day Saint who teaches at BYU, um, part of my primary job is to help other people believe. Yeah. And in an age of secularism where um, like secularism doesn't have to be this force that destroys faith, but it certainly has to be a force that's inevitable and has to be deal dealt with in its complex, most complex forms. It's interesting. I, I feel like you and I are, are around the same age. Um, so you'll remember a time, you know, growing up that essentially anything that challenged that uh that narrative that we were taught within the church, we just labeled it. It was anti. That's anti-Mormon literature. That's, well, that, I mean, I don't know what you're reading from, but, but that's anti. Whereas a younger generation coming up now, they can look at it and they go, oh, oh no, no, no. That that may have some difficult, some pain points, some some things that, you know, as we look through today's lens at, you know, almost 200 years ago, you know, we would certainly do those things different. But it, but it's not anti that that shift from anti-Mormon to just like, no, this is just historical context has really shifted it in, in our lifetimes. Yeah. I, and I think I think there's room for all of that still within Mormonism. I don't think we should dismiss the 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 individual who wants to be orthodox and dogmatic and. Like, I, I think there's room there and there's room for others. Like, I think there's a, a sense of plurality and belief that's developing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's healthy for individuals who find them at odds with uh, church culture, but deeply devoted to uh, uh, the, the values and, and the sense of theology that you find within as Latter-day Saints. And so I think, I think in some ways, like, the, the diversity should go both ways. You know, you, you yeah. still want to value an older generation that, that sees the world in more McConkieite like views. And, but you also have a, a new demographics emerging within the church, like LGBT groups or individuals who are deeply uh, troubled by internet information or individuals who are academically inclined. And the, these are descriptions of believers. They're not descriptions of non-believers. And I hope that's the more positive shift that we begin to take is uh, someone like me who is more academically inclined. I would want, uh, you know, someone like my grandfather, who's very uh, conservatively inclined, mm -hmm. and dogmatically inclined. Um, I want to believe that he's a believer and that I'm a believer and that those two things can exist and coincide together. Um, and I think that that kind of plurality of belief is developing without challenging the boundaries and norms within the church. It's just allowing for individuals to find a kind of faith within church. And, and it doesn't narrow people into one corner, paint you into a corner. You're either this or you're not a Latter-day Saint. Um, right. I, I think I think that is the, the 
the generation that we're in, it's essential. That's an essential category. It's an interesting thing, and I know that we'll get into this in the second and third block here of the Cultural Hall, but there are parts, elements of uh, your new book, Prophetic Authority, that I think some people will go, ooh, oh man, I gotta, I gotta work my way through this, or I've gotta understand this, or I didn't know this. And that's, you know, one of the things that I think is just a tremendous benefit anytime that we're able to have um, faithful members of the church be able to discuss some hard things and be able to provide context and be able to provide a great study and um, documentation of these things. We'll get to that. I want to pick up a couple other things before we take that break. Uh, Are you a married person? You have kids. How did you meet your wife? Did you go to BYU? Let's fill in some of those kind of things we can yeah. get a little bit to know about you before we dive in deep. So I, I'm married. Um, uh, I have five kids under 13. Oh my gosh. Good 13, for you. 13 to four. Well, maybe. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and so like, uh, yeah, I'm married. I met my wife. We both went on our missions to Hawaii. Lock your heart, her Elder Mackay. Lock your heart, Elder Mackay. What happened? <laughs> let, let, let me ask you this about serving in Hawaii as as one who served in Ohio, which is where I served, Cleveland Mission. Uh, I, I think I sort of always dreamed if I was going to go stateside and I was going to go English, that I wanted to be able to go somewhere like a Hawaii. Is it as difficult serving there as one would purport? Because you're not allowed to go to the beach. You're not allowed to be in the water. All of those things that Hawaii is sort of known for. It's like, yeah, you can be in it, but not of it. Yeah, I, I don't know if there's an abnormal amount of breaking the rules in Hawaii as missionaries, because uh, this is the only mission I really knew. And there was there was a fair amount of breaking rules, but uh, I, I also think it was pretty controlled. Hmm. Um, for, for me, it was uh, like I never served in areas that were enabled me to, do, to have, even have the opportunity uh, to, to run down to the beach and take a swim or anything, but, uh, it, it was, it was an amazing mission. And I think it had, it, it had some advantages to other missions, I'm sure. But. Well, and, and tremendous culture with, uh, the Hawaiian people in the church too. And that's, that's a whole discussion for a different time. How was it that you, uh, ended up courting then and dating your wife? If, if you weren't in peak dating shape, how, how did you, how did you swindle that? We both were both from Centerville, Utah. Uh, We went to the same junior high and the same high school. And so when I came back, I, I, it turns out I lived a couple of miles away from her. Mm -hmm. And so we actually set each other up with our friends. Uh, We both dated each other's friends (laughs) first. And And then of course, as the story goes, let me guess, it didn't work. And then one night as you were talking, you know, you were lamenting the fact that it didn't work with the respective people that you guys lined up. There was suddenly a, a different look to her yeah. or to you. I had decided I was going to become a doctor and I tricked her. I said, I'm going to become a doctor. And and she thought that was a good idea. And it just turns out that I became this kind of doctor. So <laughs> I, I, I don't know how much regret there is on her side, but. <laughs> that, that might be a conversation with her for a different time. Uh, let, let's take a break. When we come back in the second block, I want to dive deep into um, you talk about some different uh, like forms of governance and authority. And so we're going to get super nerdy. If you've liked the light stuff, stick with us because we're going to dive full in 
Uh, we'll come back and do that in the second block of the cultural hall. Consumer alert! Consumer alert! Dan the Laptop Man here from PC Laptops. There is an extremely insane computer infection called Zeus Zbot infecting hundreds of thousands of computers across the world. This infection is super malicious because it puts you in danger by recording every keystroke you make into your computer, stealing your confidential information, including your banking passwords. You could be infected and never know until you have all your money sucked out of your bank account. At PC Laptops, we can help. If you think you've been infected or just want to be safe, please bring in your PC, no matter what brand it is, into any one of our locations right now, and we'll scan it for free. Why are we doing this for free? Because we want to impress you so much that if you or any of your friends need a computer, service, or phone repair, you come to PC Laptops first. Get into any one of our locations right now or check us out at PCLaptops.com. PC Laptops, where computers start at $7.99. PC Laptops, we love you. Here in the second block of the Cultural Hall, man, I'm going over the list of the guests that we've had recently here in the Cultural Hall, and awesome. Not only is my guest Michael Mackay, which I will insist I call him for the rest of the time, uh, a great guest, but just so many. And the way that we're able to continue to have great guests and produce great content is through support through listeners like yourself. So if you can, we would love to, for you to make that uh, donation. You can go to patreon.com slash the cultural hall. You can also find a link to it in association with this episode in the show notes. Uh, you can go and you can make a pledge. There's a three, a five or a ten dollar uh, limit that you can do on that. And uh, word to the wise, that $3 limit uh, or that $3 donation, it's going to fill up and then you're only going to be able to do the 5 or 10. So make sure you get on that. If you're one that is prone to go for the lesser amount, get in on that before that opportunity goes away. Michael, uh, we talk about uh, the leadership of the church. We talk about the existence of the church in the time of Joseph Smith. And, and something that hadn't really dawned on me until I started reading a little bit about what you've written, is this idea that, uh, you know, Americans, 200 years ago, we left uh, the the leadership of a monarchy and we were like, oh, we hate this. This is terrible. And we come to the United States and we're like, we want something new. And then there was a faction of people that were like, but we kind of liked the monarchy. And, <laughs> and you see that, and I'd never kind of related the two, you sort of see that. Uh, permeate its way into the church. Am I making a fair estimation of of one of the things that you purport in your book? Yeah. Um, so there's a scholar, um, Amanda Porterfield, who she suggested she called it a nostalgia for for monarchy. Mm -hmm. And this is this is in opposition to a a traditional narrative that's become very predominant for this period of time. Um, and the argument is that many of the religions became very democratic. They were perpetuated democratically. And so meaning, meaning what, how, how, how would we see that, that they were perpetuated democratically? Yeah. So, so um, at the revolution, you get the creation of a secular state and that secular state uh, separates it from church. And so church and state become secular. This is a very secular move. And as you get this disestablishment of the church or churches, none of them are associated or directly tied to the state that these people have now created, the United States. Um, this creates a sense of democracy between religions. So you get 
a lot of different sects competing for uh, people to join. And you get the emergence of the Second Great Awakening even after a couple of decades. But essentially, as these the proliferation of religions that aren't attached to the state, these religions begin to compete with each other. And the argument was that through that competition, the sectarian competition, um, that and the disestablishment is that then religions became far more democratic and and people were joining because of this democratic fervor and so recently the scholarship has pushed uh, back against this narrative and began to 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 demonstrate that that separation um, even drew them closer to needing something of stability. They, there is even a religious doubt in governance, in civil society, the doubt that they began to perpetuate about the government and the state created really dominant religions, religions that created governance and structure and hierarchy to soothe the, the doubt that they were having about state and, and this secular state. And so this, this actually fits extremely well and demonstrates a whole lot about the emergence of Mormonism. Mormonism, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in fact— You can say, just so you know, you can say Mormonism, because at the time it was called Mormonism, but I do appreciate their respect for the actual term. Yeah, uh, so in, in this case, like, there, there's an argument like the, the phrase, by common consent, many people have grabbed onto this, or— the fact that uh, yeah, the average male could come into the church and become a high priest if, if that so happened. So you have what you would perceive as a democratic emergence of Latter-day Saints. Um, but when you begin to look at it really carefully and how the church was governed and how it was positioned and established, it turns out that there is a, a, a very distinct hierarchical uh, emergence of the church rather than democratic. It's interesting because as you were speaking, you know, my mind was sort of reminded of, of what we read in Joseph Smith history and in other places where it's like during this time of great excitement, my mind was off called up, you know, this confusion and all this time. So can can one infer that then not only was he maybe seeking guidance from God, but just the comfort in the being led a, a, as an individual, as a people within this time, not finding um, that relationship with with God and 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 civil leadership within that time. Do we think that that, or am I just now sort yeah, of throwing? That, I mean, that, that's an actually actually a really good passage. So from Joseph Smith's history, where he he's looking back, you know, a couple of decades backwards. He's writing it in 1839, and he's remembering when he had that the, his first vision, and his memory of it is that uh, the diversity in churches, which could be seen as the democratic diversity. That is actually what bothered him. He didn't like that they were battling. He, he wanted a kind of security, a security that an individual authoritative figure could offer to him. And, and that authoritative figure, he, he says, even the Bible, like the Bible was the place at which this, uh, these squabbles happened. So they all believed in the Bible and the Bible offered each of them authority which then complicated it. Mm -hmm. And he says, I can't even trust that each one of these is correct. And so this, this is his reflection about that. And it, and it does play extremely well into this hierarchical argument is. And so like 
Porterfield argues that this is a kind of nostalgia for monarchy. The state, they demand that the state emerges and the state emerges from great deist ideas, like very secular ideas. And then the United States is perpetuated by the religious populace um, who actually do the work of, of uh, um, creating the state. And so as those two things come together, uh, religion in itself, when it's disestablished from the state, when it's separated, you, you then have this deep desire for uh, a, a kind of authority security that is hierarchical rather than the chaos that is sectarian religion. So then let me ask you this, then is it in, is it divinely inspired to the prophet Joseph? Is this is is this your assertion that it's divinely inspired to the prophet Joseph to have this hierarchical where we take a little bit of this and a little bit of this and we blend it into the church? And and that's why it, it's able to have made it through that religious fervor and be the church that it is today. Yeah, I, and, and I think so part of the book is to perpetuate this idea. So. So if you have this in divinely inspired church that's set in, I mean, it's the, the kind of idea that it's divinely inspired and can't change. That's, that's not what Joseph is delivering. It's divinely, it, uh, it comes divinely to him and given to him with the authority of the divine. But within that, his authoritative voice then enables the malleability of this hierarchical church. So, he uses all kinds of narratives, like narratives of restoration, whether it's John the Baptist or Peter, James, and John. Mm -hmm. At any given time during his charismatic prophethood, where his voice then begins to shape and stabilize the church. But it doesn't mean just because it stabilizes and he extends priesthood out to others that the hierarchy isn't still there. You can see the reflection of this. In, like you see Joseph Smith being charismatic. His voice perpetuates absolute authority mm -hmm. like the Bible would in an evangelical church. Mm -hmm. But it's malleable. He keeps getting new revelations. So it can change and adjust to circumstances. And so like today, the church is still very hierarchical. People look upward to the prophet. Um, but then you also have the authority of the prophet at local areas. And so this gives a, a, a sense of how the authority is transferred to regional areas. Um, and then it gets very democratic when the realization is within that hierarchy, salvation is offered to everyone. Everybody can become a king and a queen, mm -hmm. a priest and a priestess. And, and so you have this strange uh, a paradox where you have a hierarchical democracy. And that's that's where the title comes in in the book is this hierarchy that is determinant on the on the the governance and the formation of the church then offers up the same opportunity to every individual. And, and there are some interesting kind of um, like pit stops along that way to me that, that sort of indicate where that would be. Uh, my mind immediately goes to uh, one thing which you say within the book is the, this idea of granting the priesthood to, of course, we know any 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 male who would be worthy to do that. But that is something, at, at least as far as I know, uh, outside of, um, you know, going to school, etc. For that time, that was a new and unique idea. Is that what empowered um, the church to be able to grow as it did and and have 
that that beginning structure of hierarchy is that we said, listen, come, you could you could be this. I, you'd want to be this, wouldn't you? Because you could be as he is. Yeah, I th- I think like like part of the structure comes from the different bases of of religious authority at the time, um, and then the contours of change that happen within the authority of the church happen with the development and eventual institutionalization of the church. Mm-hmm. And so if you you follow the history, you can see the contours of it, but the very emergence of it. It's in opposition to some of the other kinds of religious authority, like one that you could argue is more democratic would be maybe the Calvinist or Reformed uh, theology. And, and so you have this idea of sola scriptura, where all authority lies within the Bible. Mm-hmm. And with that authority, then communities are created like priesthood of all believers. And authority comes directly from that text. And the text can't be changed. It can't be moved. But if you believe in it, then you can be part of this very democratic group of priesthood of all believers. And so this is, this is I, I call it sola profeta, which is the opposite <laughs> of sola scriptura. Sola scriptura could encourage a kind of democratic religious authority. And it does. Whereas in as Latter-day Saints, Joseph Smith perpetuates the idea that in the prophet's words, all things could change at any given moment. Um, and so he, he does the most blasphemous authoritative thing you could do. He adds to the Bible. In mm-hmm. fact, he adds an entire new Bible. And then the contours that shapes the authority across his ministry are delivered by additional uh, ancient records but also additional revelatory statements that definitively define new contours and changes within the authority structure. And so the emergence actually is a hierarchical emergence. The Bible itself is creating sectarian strife. The Bible itself is creating a democratic authority. And by him delivering, like dictating a almost 600 page new Bible, determines his authority. Um, The very notion of him becoming a prophet is probably best demonstrated by him dictating 588 pages to Oliver Cowdery, and then people reading it and seeing the power within it. His voice is speaking for Christ, is delivering new revelation. And so, like, even when you imagine, like, I I always think in my mind, like, when he delivers these revelations, he's sitting like across this two foot table, someone's looking in his face and he says, I am God. Mm -hmm. I am the one, the only, I am Christ, right? Like you're the person on the other side of that table and the embodiment of Christ is in this prophetic figure. And it's not like they didn't take him seriously. These commandments aren't just like, hey, go get some paper. Right. They are, they're like 10, 20 year initiatives. Hey, sell your home, move to the Western side of the United States, establish a kingdom of God. Like these are massive, huge uh, revelations that take decades. And even now we're still trying to fulfill some of them. And these people are following absolute. They're giving up their entire lives and livelihoods 
just to follow that prophetic voice. That is a kind of hierarchy that you cannot ignore. And so to, to demonstrate, and, and I think this actually makes sense today, where when our prophets speak, even if it's not thus saith the Lord revelation, mm -hmm. uh, Latter-day Saints follow. And it creates uh, this kind of realization of how the kingdom of God would function hierarchically. But in the end, uh, like Jonathan Stapley's new brilliant work, I, I, you should interview him for sure. He's probably uh, one of the biggest landmark books that's been published in the past 30 years. But Jonathan calls this a kind of cosmological priesthood, hmm. one that includes everybody. So it's, it also could be associated with temple priesthood, where women are included, men are included, were promised to be gods, goddesses, priests, priestesses, kings and queens. And this is where that democratic element is inevitably absolute. So as a Latter-day Saint, I literally have no keys of the priesthood. The, the 12 and the, or the 15 hold those keys. Yet, I have every promise to be rewarded and be part of this sort of democratic reality in heaven, even though I'm near the bottom of this hierarchy. My role, which enables me to be uh, like this humble role of follower, and, and, and at every level, I, I am a follower to the bishop, to the state president. Um, at, at some point, you know, I could end up being one of those people who are actually doing the dictation of God's word rather than being just the follower. But it creates this sense of hierarchy and democracy. Uh, that the book tries to capture in the emergence of the priesthood. So in a scholarly perspective, not necessarily a faith-based, certainly, you know, you and I are, are members of the church and, the, and we believe in this, you know, this divine authority from God to the prophet Joseph Smith, etc. Uh, maybe we have differences in that, but as a general, let's just say we accept that. Uh, but from a scholarly perspective, could the church exist had it not set itself up in this, in this sort of structure, or or would its non-uniqueness being like anyone else? Would we have just gone like so many other faiths from that time did, and just gone into non-existence? Yeah, I, I so realistic, like a pragmatic question, like so part of the like in one of the chapters I try to develop a couple of the other figures that emerge at the same time with the same kind of forces where a hierarchy is actually satisfying within religion. Someone like Jemima Wilkinson or Anne Lee, like these are prophetic figures and these prophetic figures emerge to satisfy a similar kind of religious desire and need at the time. And so you do get a lot of these individual groups. You also get people that are determining uh, this idea of a kingdom of God. Uh, you have a lot of premillennialists that are preparing the earth for God's reign. Mm -hmm. um, and so in some ways, almost all Christian religions at that point in the United States are developing a form of that, uh, a, a kind of form of that. Um, the new emerging religions, um, uh, Mormonism, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in itself is the longest lasting and the most successful of all of these. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I think a, a very good argument for this is 
because its hierarchy was then distributed. So uh, like, and Joseph Smith was forced to do this at one point. There's a thousand miles between him in Ohio and David Whitmer in, in Missouri. And there's a, a gap in leadership. Uh, Joseph either empowers him with his same kind of authority or there will be discontent. And there was, they, they called Joseph a monarch at this mm. point. They're, they're like, Joseph is nothing but a monarch. He's a bad, he's, he's just determining things without knowing the, the information. And so Joseph empowers this other group, David Whitmer, and then what becomes the presidency of uh, the Missouri part of the church. And, and this emerges as a distribution of that authority. And this is where you get the separation between other prophetically, hierarchically driven churches that emerge in antebellum America, mm -hmm. and the difference between them and, and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is now you get a distribution of that authority. And within that distribution of authority, that's still extremely hierarchical, stake presidents determining what happens in their region. Um, then the, the routinization of, of these practices plays out in Mormon ritual. And so you get uh, things like the endowment that then completely democratize it. You participate, but you may never actually be at the top of any of the hierarchies in the church until you die. And so this, this system of hierarchy, but the promise of, of becoming gods, kings, and queens um, is a balance that is still today uh, creates quite a, a, a dynamic governance in the church. And currently today, uh, you see the outcome of this, where uh, women who possess the priesthood in the temple in a very direct, absolute form, they mm -hmm. even perform ordinances in that temple uh, capacity. The question now is, can that same kind of democratization that's within the cosmological or temple priesthood uh, survive outside in a more patriarchal world that, that we live in as, as 21st century Latter-day Saints. And you can see that tension today. Uh, uh, Elder Oaks is continually addressing that tension. And, and you've seen change just within the last 20 years um, with that tension. I don't know where that will all go, but the current dialogue is women have the priesthood but aren't ordained within the priesthood. Uh, it, it's an interesting road to know sort of where it's come from and how this still permeates within the church today, right? 21st century uh, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saintsism. Man, Mormonism was such a quicker thing to say, but I understand it. We move along. I want to take another break. When we come back in the third block, I want to ask uh, a little bit more about um, the differences, certainly, that, that we see within the church in the time of Joseph Smith and that structure and how we see it today, similarities and differences. And I also want to talk about uh, maybe some roadblocks to some people within this sort of hierarchical uh, structure. So we'll come back and do that in the third block of the Cultural Hall. <laughs> 
Imagine running a small business today. It's challenging. Imaging and internet presence is an absolute must. Even with that, you're still a small star in a bright cyber universe. Now, imagine you have someone who understands how to get your site designed for your talents and then easily searched by potential clients. Imagine Lennon Design. Whether it's strictly a website or a whole package of logo creation, advertising media, and promotional materials, Lennon Design is your partner in business. They'll test the boundaries of their imagination to create something unique for you. When you need creative, affordable design, let it be Lennon Design. Call 801-699-3022 or visit LennonDesign.com. Here in the third block of the Cultural Hall, you've got a great guest that you think uh, should be here on the microphone with me. You can always email us, contact at theculturalhall.com, or you can find us on social media. We're at the Cultural Hall, wherever you do your social media, and you can uh, message us on any of those platforms. Uh, also, if you love what Michael Mackay is saying with us today, you can leave a review for this episode or any other episode that you've enjoyed. We'd love to see that. If you're thinking about leaving a one-star review, just go ahead and shut your computer down. Uh, think a little bit about the choices that you're about to make. Turn it back on and leave that five-star review. Love to hear from you, uh, and you can do that again wherever you're getting this episode. Uh, Michael, I know that our time, not short, but I, there are a few things that I want to hit up. Um, this hierarchical, this, you know, we can become God if we just, you know, if we can just make it into the next life, right? This all this, these blessings and power and all these things that wait for us, that's not only do, blame, do I believe that to, to be true, but it's also pretty empowering and given in the wrong hands could be terribly destructive, destroying, awful, terrible, all of the things. So my question is, how, how, do, we, how do we see that play out? How do we, how do we see those, those positive, you know, God-given instruction play out and are are there times where we see it where things get sort of course corrected and 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 we see the change from the leadership going oh yeah no that was bad let's let's move that along yeah i think um i think uh, so if if you even looked at like the the evolution of the the temple endowment itself as it moves along you can see the like every generation you get these these changes and it and it's refit to help us understand its purpose, mm -hmm. um, and and so like uh, everyone's seen the uh, or I think everyone who's listened to this has has seen the changes in the endowment that have recently gone on. Uh, some of the older generation will know about the 1990 changes, which were one of the largest changes of the endowment. And so within our own lifetimes, we see the adjustment of things. Like when you talk about what is it that Latter-day Saints offer that is unique and that offers up salvation, mm -hmm. it's not always our knowledge. Our knowledge certainly directs us towards the things that save us, but what we know isn't really what saves us. It's the fact that we get baptized, we join Christ Church. It's these eternal relationships that we really end up making, and those eternal relationships are only as efficacious or our endowment and our rituals are only as efficacious as they create those eternal relationships. And so across time, you've seen adjustments. Like the very first time Joseph Smith offers up a kind of endowment is you can see several renditions throughout his life of a kind of thing that is an endowment. Um, in particular, the very first one that he does, you know, he, he just has a handful of men 
uh, in his office uh, in Nauvoo. Um, and that, that very idea, the endowment that he gives them is, is very much different when he does it the next year in 1843. 1843, in fact, includes women. Hmm. Women join, and that's, you can think about the endowment, how radically different the very actions of the endowment are if there are women involved. Yeah. Um, what, what happens when there's no Eve, right? Mm -hmm. It's a serious question. And that's within one year of Joseph in uh, revealing the first, that 1842 endowment and the 1843 endowment, two very different things. The second year, he adds uh, uh, ceiling to it. And so this change, this kind of adjustment, um, he sees it as pointing back to a kind of essential reality. And, and he does this even with uh, like the grand history of Judeo-Christian teachings. Mm -hmm. Like he'll, he'll portray that all the way back to Adam. There is an essential something that we are doing that Adam too did. Um, and he talks about this even with restoration of priesthood. Like there's a kind of patriarchal connection across time. Um, now, the precision of that, of course, is very difficult, but the idea and seeing him watch him change essential things for salvation um, within one year mm -hmm. demonstrate a kind of that goes back to this centrality of a prophet as latter of in Latter-day Saint belief. We as Latter-day Saints centrally believe in a prophetic figure who speaks for God. Now, this, this allows for us to dynamically live our lives and follow God. Um, and you can see these adjustments. Now, to predict one forward or backwards, like especially forward, is, is sort of a tricky thing to do. Right. Caught within a kind of cultural uh, normative position to say, I mean, something like today, if someone were to be like, oh, yeah, give it 20 years and. Mormons will be marrying um, LGBT couples in the temple. Like, like that, that's a pretty outrageous thing to predict. Um, and it also defies the concept of the prophet. The prophet is certainly reacting to cultural realities that will help people believe more. Mm -hmm. um, and so for us to like perpetuate, I, I want to determine what he does is also very faux pas as Latter-day Saints. We don't pressure the prophet to come up with a revelation that's better than the, what we now have. Um, it's a kind of waiting and hoping and trusting. And it gets to kind of the core central values as Latter-day Saints that we have. But for there to be change, like to limit God on what he can and cannot do is, is not a wise thing either. Yeah. Um, this idea, like it's it's theologically at odds with what we believe God to be capable of. And, and so there's, it goes back to the same thing. If you're a Latter-day Saint who is, who is a woman who wants more authoritative positions or an LGBT person who wants to be included in temple rituals, um, this is an even harder position. It requires uh, the faith of, of an individual who is his own or her own lifestyles in opposition to some of the belief system and practices that they're, they're involved with. I can't only imagine, like I, I, am not in those kinds of positions. Mm -hmm. And so there has to be a kind of sympathy for them, but also centrally 
I am a believer. I am a follower. I will do what the prophet says and, and I will work it out in my life and understand. And I'm not a blind believer. I will certainly work through these issues and, and very carefully make a decision. It, it, uh, it's such an interesting um, a position that you sort of bring up, right? Uh, being in, in, the, in those other sort of positions, whether you're a woman who wants to be able to, you know, exercise or function within some authority or an LGBT uh, individual who really wants to enjoy some of those blessings that earth life is provided for you. Uh, knowing or I guess, you know, looking back and saying, look, things have changed in the past. We're obviously going to change again with that sort of anticipation looking forward. I think that's where so many people find themselves so very frustrated. It's like, we're going to change this. Can't we just change this now? And as your book and as our discussion sort of points out, that's that's just not how God works. Yeah. And I think like um, like Elder Oaks pointed this out in one of his speeches, one of his famous ones, when he first started to to in, insinuate that I think it was like 2014. I can't remember the exact year, but he he starts insinuating. He's talking about priesthood and he starts talking about women. And the idea he perpetuates is like protesters want me to ask God for women to get the priesthood. And he expressed a kind of reticence. And the reticence was like, like, how do we approach God and ask God for something like a structural institutional change? Um, because there's a social pressure to do it. Mm-hmm. He felt as if he was in the position where he was begging God uh, when he should have been following God. Um, and I think there's a careful balance there um, uh, where like as, as Latter-day Saints, I think, I think that the kind of acceptance that we have to the prophetic figure um, is the reality that it isn't a democratically driven church. We don't just want something and from the ground up create change in the church. And, and that is a hierarchy, whether we like it or not, that is a hierarchy. And it creates a kind of determination and faith in someone else. Um, and, and I mean, this is the kind of faith that's driven in like the Martin Luther sense of faith, you know, and this like, this sense of like trust in someone else for my own salvation, uh, this reality of grace working within. And, and I think the prophetic figure can offer up that same kind of essence where you're hoping, but in many ways you, you're, you're not determining like your salvation is caught up within the grace of, of, of God. Um, and in this prophetic figure, you're also hoping and wondering um, uh, for a better day for people who might be aching, but you don't determine that. And so I don't, I don't know that it's an, it's at odds with Christianity at all. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's at odds with Christian faith yet. God asked us the second great commandment is to love your neighbor and, and just to, to ignore the fact that, uh, women want to participate more in specific ways and to ignore the fact that LGBT faithful members really are want to be and participate, but ache in the position that they find themselves within, uh, to ignore those feelings and pains is not to love your neighbor. It is, it's just not. And so here's this paradox, 
just like democratic hierarchy. Yeah. A paradox that emerges with the central foundation of the church and a paradox that continues to today. And I think it's possible to foster all kinds of faith within this uh, while not ignoring our brothers and sisters. What, what do you hope people, we only have just a couple minutes left. What do you hope people get from your book? Um, I, I hope they understand that central to our religion from beginning till now is a prophetic figure. Authority derives from God through a prophetic figure. That's what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is centrally. Um, I'd also, the other thing I, I hope for is, is uh, through that prophetic figure, I explore all of the narratives of restoration that come through the prophetic voice. And some of those narratives uh, challenge our traditional narratives. Mm. Um, and I think it actually offers us a deeper understanding. It doesn't necessarily say they're wrong, but it shows a historical uncovering of some of them that, that places them in a scenario that will help us foster uh, a central faith in the prophet. You know, we, we end this conversation perhaps as we, as we started it, where being able to get uh, a greater understanding, a historical context, uh, what is the difference between us and other folks, a, you know, a real deep study, a real look at you know, the foundation of this church can provide um, maybe more questions, but I, I think as you just sort of stated, can really provide us a greater, if you'll, if, if you'll allow me the church-based fund, a firmer foundation uh, for us uh, within our faith. There are three questions that we ask everyone uh, who step into the cultural hall. So, Michael, I will ask those of you right now. The first question is, uh, do you have a calling right now? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I'm the... Uh... Well, I, I was just barely released from scouts. <laughs> I was doing scouts for years. Good for you. Um, but I've also, during that calling, I've been the elders quorum teacher. If you could pick a calling for yourself, either one that exists or make one up, what would you pick? I'd be the elders quorum teacher. Yeah. Like it's the most, it's amazing. Uh, my, the people I go to church with are unbelievably amazing. It's quite a community. Do you, uh, are you like a once a month guy, once every couple of months? How often do you, uh, do you teach within that calling? I'm scheduled once a month, but okay. I usually pick up the, the ones that fall through the cracks. It ends up being, you know, one or two a month. Okay. Okay. Uh, and then our final question that we ask everyone and ask you to interpret this however you would like, uh, what is your favorite part of your faith? The favorite part of my faith? I, I, uh believe centrally that uh, uh, we believe in a family theology. Um, and the idea, I, I find my deepest hope when I'm a good father, um, I know God more when I express my sincere desires to be a good father. I think I know him better as a father by being a father. Um, and that is extremely core to my faith. I believe that I have a heavenly parents that love me. The name of the book is Prophetic Authority. It's Democratic Hierarchy and the Mormon Priesthood. Uh, our guest has been Michael. I'll call him Mackay until the day I die. Uh, you can pick up that book wherever you purchase books. Buy the book, read the book, and maybe we can get Michael in in the future to talk a little bit more about that priesthood 
and, uh, and and the church of today and how we see some of those things from early times express themselves in our day. Uh, in the meantime, we hope that this episode has nourished and strengthened your body and that if you're not healthy enough to listen this week, that you'll be healthy enough to listen next week and that when the time comes, you will be able to travel home in safety. In the meantime, we'll be saving a seat for you on the back row of the cultural hall. Save me a seat, it's sure to be neat. On the back row, we really gotta go on the culture hall show.